This is ASHA Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. Marshall University is located in Huntington, West Virginia, a city that is sometimes referred to as the epicenter of the opioid epidemic. As of 2018, the state had the highest rate of neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, in the country. NAS is the result of opioid use by mothers during pregnancy. Their babies are exposed to the drug and the newborns experience symptoms related to withdrawal. But today's guests say the effects of prenatal opioid exposure can last beyond infancy and early childhood, with children presenting characteristics that can sometimes be mistaken for other diagnoses, like autism. We speak to a mother who adopted a son with prenatal opioid exposure and a researcher in West Virginia whose conversations with school-based SLPs reveal where the opioid epidemic may be showing up on caseloads. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Reading, Writing, and the SLP. Preschool to high school. This continuing education opportunity begins February 2nd. Save $100 when you register by January 11th. Learn more at on.asha.org reading22. Sarah Clemens is an SLP and the Director of Clinical Education in the Communication Disorders Department at Marshall University. She's also a mother of a five-year-old son. My son Cameron is adopted and he was born prenatally exposed to opioids. Because I'm based out of Huntington, West Virginia, we are kind of become an epicenter for the opioid epidemic. And so we have specialized units here who are just dedicated to children who are born exposed to opioids because a lot of these kids go through withdrawals and have medical concerns following the exposure. Sarah says after six weeks in the therapeutic unit, she took Cameron home. At that time, she was a foster parent. About 18 months later, she would adopt him. Before you take a child home that has a known prenatal exposure, you have to attend some trainings. And that training kind of gives you some information on withdrawals, increased tone, some things that you might see immediately following their discharge from the therapeutic unit. I'm not sure that training does a nice job of preparing you for what it's like long-term to have a child with prenatal opioid exposure. And I think that's really not social services fault. I, I think it's because they don't really know a whole lot about these children and what these children look like as they begin to grow. This is a very important point. Later in the episode, we'll hear more about the difficulties in determining whether or not characteristics in a child originate from opioid exposure or other factors. I've been very thankful. I'm very lucky that I work here at Marshall University where we're doing some of the latest and greatest research about prenatal exposure and what that looks like for children. We'll hear more about that research led by Pam Holland soon. But what I want to share now is that Sarah says what she's hearing in Pam's research into children with prenatal opioid exposure are the same characteristics she's seeing in her son. My child is very impulsive. He doesn't really think about the consequences of his actions before he does something. He experiences speech and language delays. We had physical therapy and an early intervention team very early on. He's a complicated kid. He's got a lot going on. And I think that that's really what they're finding in the research is, you know, prenatal exposure doesn't just cause one thing. It causes a lot of things. And these kids need a a pretty extensive team to cope with some of that. As an SLP, Sarah says she noticed signs very early. 
which she called increased tone and delayed gross motor milestones. She was the one that referred Cameron for early intervention services. When I picked him up from the hospital, he was having a really hard time eating, and there was never a speech therapy consult. And so as soon as I went home, we requested an ENT consult, we requested a modified, and I was able to get those services very, very early on, just a couple months old. And then I started noticing he was getting delayed, he wasn't crawling, he wasn't rolling over, and I requested early intervention. The physician was hesitant. He didn't really want to start early intervention. And because I'm a speech therapist, I knew that I could make the referral on my own. And then later on, once we transitioned out of early intervention, again, I knew that we needed to go ahead and start the IEP process and start services in in the school setting. And so I was very thankful that I knew how to request those services and get outpatient services outside of the academic setting. And I'm afraid that parents who don't live and work in this field may not know all of the resources that these children may need. Wow. What do you think would have happened if you weren't an SLP? I think if I wasn't a speech-language pathologist, Cameron probably would have slipped through the cracks. And I think that we see a lot of these kids slipping through the cracks. Cameron does not qualify for special needs academic services. He is a bright kiddo, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't need other services. He does need speech therapy services. He does need occupational therapy services. He does need behavioral supports. And I don't know that if I wasn't an advocate for my son, if he would get all of those services that he needs. If there was one thing I would want speech therapists to know about kids who were born exposed to opioids, um, it would be that sometimes you are the only person on their team. These kids often fall through the cracks. They often don't qualify for other services. And so without your assistance, they may not get all of the services they need. And so I would just encourage speech therapists to be an advocate for these kiddos. For more on that research happening at Marshall University, we're going to hear now from Pam Holland. Pam is an SLP and the chair and graduate program director in Marshall University's Department of Communication Disorders. She's also the coordinator for the university's feeding and swallowing clinic. Pam leads research into effects of prenatal opioid exposure and how it equates to what SLPs are seeing in the schools. She says her research is showing that children with prenatal opioid exposure are presenting characteristics that may or may not be related to opioid exposure and trauma. That's part of what she is researching. We'll talk about trauma later in the episode, but to begin, I asked Pam to tell me what some of the characteristics are that she thinks may be linked to prenatal opioid exposure. For the preschool population, I think what we're finding is attention, impulsivity. A lot of our kiddos are struggling to learn because they're always on the go and they're having challenges with focusing. So they're sensory seekers. In terms of the impulsivity, sometimes what we're finding is little ones do something, what we generally would call a behavior. And then as soon as they do it, they regret that because they didn't mean to hit that kiddo or they didn't mean to bite. And they just are struggling with the cognitive ability to have impulse 
impulse control. And so from a preschool level, those are some of the things that we're saying. In addition to what we're all as speech language pathologists used to saying, and that would be, you know, some late talkers, some kiddos that are presenting with some idiosyncratic speech sound disorders, inconsistencies, as well as inability to hold on to perhaps some of the skills that have been taught in speech therapy. So they have a skill set one minute and it's gone the next. For school age, we're definitely seeing that very similar things, but, you know, the social emotional regulation is becoming a challenge for classroom teachers as well as counselors, psychologists, and speech language pathologists. And so I think dealing with, again, like I said, a large group of children, that can be a challenge for for any child, but certainly for those who perhaps may not have the neurodevelopmental regulatory system that allows them to manage varying environments. So we're seeing kiddos who are acting out, as teachers would describe them, or presenting behaviors that contribute to classroom challenges, uh, not just for that child, but for all of the children in the classroom. Yeah, I think that uh, at fourth, fifth grade is academically, we know when children are provided the opportunity to be a little bit more independent in their learning. And, and some of our kiddos and the research are suggesting that kiddos are, are having a, a difficult time with this. One of the other things I'd like to, to say is that the skills tend to be fairly splintered. And so splintered effects are also being evidenced in what our speech language pathologist reported in our focus group. You just mentioned a focus group. Who's in the focus group? We had uh, three separate focus groups, and I should say that this research was funded by the Department of Education in West Virginia, and we reached out to speech-language pathologists working in the schools and just said, we want to learn a little bit more about what you're seeing so that we can develop some ideas on how to help. Um, This is uh, specific to opioid exposure. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, the research team here at Marshall, we're at the university setting. We work in an outpatient clinic and we don't have boots on the ground in the schools. But what we do find and what we have found in our university clinic is, you know, the population that we're serving has a new family dynamic. We're seeing foster families come in and we're seeing grandparents come in and bringing their children. We're seeing different foster families. We're seeing breaks in therapy sessions or therapy times because kiddos are moving from one place to another. And so we recognized it here at the university, but we also wanted to see what what does that look like in the in the school setting? You know, are our school SLPs seeing similar things that we're seeing here at the university clinic? So we set out to talk to those speech language pathologists that are working in the schools and we We hosted three separate focus groups, one on campus, one at our state conference, and another virtually secondary to COVID hitting, and really just asked them questions. And so all of the SLPs were uh, open and shared with us that their caseloads are more challenging, Uh, that not just that the caseloads are increasing and they're getting more referrals, but that the skill sets and the needs of the children are more intense and in areas that they're not usually used to 
providing services for, and that would be emotional regulation. And that was one of the biggest themes from our our focus groups is, you know, the speech language pathologists were, were struggling because instead of working on goals that were established in an IEP that relate to language or speech sound production or literacy, they just really wanted to talk about what was going on at home or they were spending so much time with regulating the child's behavior that by the time the child was regulated and in a position to address some of the the activities or the goals for the day, it was time to go back to class. And so I think the biggest theme was we need more resources and we need more education in this new presentation of a child that really has gone beyond our scope of of practice of what we used to think in the schools. Mm -hmm. Some of the characteristics that you're mentioning, these aren't necessarily specific only to prenatal opioid exposure. So how can someone determine if what they're seeing is prenatal opioid exposure or is coming from someplace else? That's the million-dollar question. (laughs) Um, And another reason that we wanted to do our research, we believe and we're taught as speech-language pathologists that is that, you know, to ask ourselves, what's the etiology? We have to move past the first layer of why and continue past why, why, why. And that that is, again, one of the reasons we started um, to ask that question and to learn a little bit more. I, I would say one of the biggest challenges that we're finding is that when you're looking at a child that's in the school system, quite often we don't have their medical information, and all, or at least all of their medical information. And so it's hard. In, in our focus groups, one of the questions was not just related to the children that you know have been exposed, but the children that you suspect have been exposed to, to opioids. That in and of itself is pretty murky because, you know, that doesn't really bode well for etiology. But some of the SLPs are saying, you know, we suspect this based on what we know about, you know, previous children in their family. The answer to your question is we we really don't know medical information when they come to the school. And and somehow I think we need to change that. We definitely know when a child has diabetes. We, we know when a child has an EpiPen. Why wouldn't we want to know if a child was prenatally exposed? And if indeed those behaviors that we're seeing in the classroom are related to that. However, it doesn't change the immediate. And so that's why I think talking about whether the child was exposed or whether we suspect the child was exposed, it it doesn't change the ultimate behavior. And so I think that while it is important to state that, and it might be important to know, um, you know, where this child has been, but really the most important thing is to know what we're seeing and why we're seeing it and how we can address it in the current environment that they're in. And so, you know, I don't believe in labels. And I think a lot of people in the, in the schools and, and parents and grandparents don't are not forthcoming in that information. But I do believe that the more we reduce stigma associated with substance use disorder, the more likely we're going to be able to move forward with understanding the etiology, if, if indeed that is the case. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we talk more about the role stigma plays in this conversation, and Pam responds to comments from the parent we heard at the beginning of the episode, Sarah Clemens. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's online conference, Reading, Writing, and the SLP, Preschool to High School. 
from February 2nd to 14th, this continuing education opportunity will explore the unique role SLPs play in reading and writing assessment and intervention. You can earn up to 2.2 ASHA CEUs, save $100 when you register by January 11th. Learn more at on.asha.org reading22. In my conversation with Sarah Clemens about her son, she told me this. I tell people all the time that if I wanted an autism diagnosis, that I think I could probably get one for Cameron. His characteristics are so similar to someone with autism that I think it's frequently misdiagnosed. Paraphrasing this comment, I asked Sarah's colleague, researcher Pam Holland, if Pam thinks there's an issue with misdiagnosis, and if she thought a lack of labeling and knowledge limit the resources that these children can receive. I think rather than providing someone a resource because of a diagnosis, we need to provide someone and a family the resource that they need at the time, regardless of a diagnosis. And so I think that, that there needs to be some ground roots advocacy regarding that, because I hear that time and time again. I, you know, I saw a family just last week, and they came in with a diagnosis of autism. And while I don't believe that a speech-language pathologist alone should make that diagnosis, I was with a team of professionals, and we all agreed that the child that was presented to us for feeding evaluation did not present with autism. But this mom, who had adopted him, said, a lot of people say that we need that diagnosis for services. And that that has been the theme for so many years, but I think it's time that we we step outside the box and provide families resources that they need based on what's happening and what they're reporting the challenges with that family are. Pam says effects of prenatal opioid exposure show up in children's regulatory systems, mentioning high sensory seeking skills and visual stimming. Pam says some of these characteristics may resemble other diagnoses like autism. I don't think that those two things are the same. And I just would hate to have a society where we're labeling children or we're diagnosing children based on resources and not the literature, which is what we're trying to create here. I want to share with you another quote from Sarah. Here she says, I'll be honest, every time that I tell my son's diagnosis, when we go to the doctor and I tell them that he was prenatally exposed, I do tell them he's adopted. I don't want to tell people my son's adopted on a regular basis, but because there's the stigma associated with opioid exposure, I don't want them to assume that I was the one using during my pregnancy. And so I can't imagine for a parent going through recovery how challenging that must be because they don't have that out. Can we talk about the role stigma plays? Sure, sure. Sarah's 100% right. The mothers that I come into contact with who have adopted children are openly forthcoming and authentic about why why they're with me and what they're looking for and why they think the, the presentation of symptoms has manifested in their children. And so what I'm also finding is um, the families uh, that I'm working with in the Birth to Three program who still have their babies and are working toward establishing those healthy, healthy social emotional connections between mom and babies are not quite so comfortable sharing that information. And so the stigma is important and we need to make a concerted effort across the nation to change that. One thing we have here in Huntington is a program called Project Hope for Women and Children. And it is an inpatient rehabilitation recovery program that allows mothers to 
remain with their infants and their their children while they're in active recovery. And so I think that this is a real good step in the right direction because what it's it's letting moms know is that they, you know, that we recognize they're asking for help. And we also recognize that they want to be a mother and they want to be the best mother that they can be. And and quite often what we'll find is perhaps someone that says, well, that can't be true because of the decision that they made when they were pregnant. And until you sit down and you talk to moms who are holding their infants and recognize why their infants are presenting symptoms and that they're the reasons and really recognize that they want to do better and they are also human beings and they want to be the best moms and they want the best for their infants. Reducing that stigma is key. I love to be able to talk to a mom and just ask her, tell me about the substances that you were using when you were pregnant. I can do that very easily at Project Hope. I can do that uh, in some fashions in birth to three. But when you're in a school system or you're an outpatient clinic, those are questions that are not so easily asked still because of the stigma. You know, words matter, care matters, perspective matters. And so that's one of our missions as well is to make families feel comfortable to seek guidance and support, not just for themselves, but for their infants and children. Did you always feel this way or was there maybe a client that helped you to see things this way? Wow, that's a great question. I think I'm on a journey. I don't think I'm there yet. It goes back to a documentary that I saw that was completed many years ago about the homeless in Huntington. And it was completed by a high school student in South Point, Ohio. And I remember attending the opening of that documentary. And all I could see were the kids who were living in the homeless shelter. And that was kind of my path to assisting moms and families. And that was probably 10, 12 years ago before really the opioid epidemic hit us hard. But homelessness was was part of that. And so how do you help a mom who um, is trying to help their children when they don't have a home? And so I, I don't know that there was a particular parent who changed my perspective. It really has been a blessing that I've been able to work with a group of professionals in Huntington that have taught me about stigma and how words matter and working and talking with moms in recovery, talking about their stories about the person that they used to be versus the person that they are now. I think that, you know, I can relate to that. The person I was 12 years ago isn't the person that I am today and the knowledge that I, you know, that I have and and the way in which I practice is is much different now. Um, And so I, I would say each experience has kind of molded that professional and that perspective. You've said words matter. What are the words that you're referring to? What kind of words should people be trying to use or or not use with regards to stigma? I think my pet peeve of a word is drug addict. I read a report that came to me from a rather large hospital. And in the body of the report, it said birth mother was a drug addict. And it came to a shock to my system when I read that because I had anticipated we had moved past the use of that word. And so I do believe it's a process. The more you learn, the the more educated you become about the proper terminology. I think substance use disorder is, is appropriate. The evidence suggests that your brain on substances changes. We know that alcoholism is a disease now, and I think that it took many, many, many years for us to to recognize that. And I think the substance use disorder is the term that I would like to see 
I also hate the term drug baby. I think anybody who uses that needs to dig a little bit deeper into the research as well as their heart because no baby has ever chosen to partake in drugs. You know, these are infants that were exposed to drugs. And I think that the term that's used now is NOWS, Neonatal Opioid Withdrawal Syndrome. And, and we're actually, you know, trying to coin the term just children with a history of opioid exposure. Because once they're five, they don't have NOWS anymore. They have had history surrounding opioids. So, you know, I think those are probably my two, my two pet peeves. And that I'd love to see the nation take a, a different, broader, more compassionate perspective so substance use disorder and infants with a exposure or history of exposure to opioids. We're also going to talk about trauma. That's something else that, that school-based SLPs might be seeing and needing to respond to when it comes to opioid exposure. How might a school-based SLP witness that there's something going on involving trauma and how can they respond? Sure, sure. Our speech therapists and our focus groups tell us that they're learning more about that, not, again, not in the documentation, but in the words that children use. So they're, you know, working with a child in speech therapy, and they talk about their dad being in prison, or, you know, shootings happening, or, you know, they ask if they have something to eat in their therapy room because they didn't get to eat breakfast, and um, there wasn't dinner, so there's food insecurities. And those are just the things that children are comfortable saying. And so those those were quotes that came from focus groups, but the trauma that perhaps is happening that we can't see is is really beyond the scope of what I have to offer or would be certainly experienced enough to shed uh, some insight on. But I think it's important because trauma we know affects the brain as well. There was a child that I saw that again, once again, had a diagnosis of autism, came in and then we learned not only was there exposure in utero, but there was also trauma and neglect. And so once we learned a little bit more about this story, I mean, the, the, the young girl didn't have eye contact. Um, and so there was somebody and she was primarily nonverbal. So there was a diagnosis of autism. But when you learned a little bit more about her story and the trauma that she exhibited, her behaviors were consistent with um, kind of a survival mode. And so, again, it goes back to etiology matters and understanding how trauma can affect language, social, emotional regulation, and just social engagement. But yeah, trauma is probably something that we're hearing a lot more about within the field. And I I would say as a whole, speech language pathologists are still uh, a long way to go. We have a lot more to learn. I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier a little bit. I understand you're still working on standards as far as assessment and treatment. There's still research being done. But what is it that SLPs might need to know now to better meet the needs of their students when it comes to students that have had a history of opioid exposure prenatally? What do speech-language pathologists need to know in terms of assessment um, protocols? I I think what our focus groups shared and and even our surveys that we distributed, um, really that the standardized tests are are, are the same standardized tests that we use. Also, what we're finding is that SLPs use the test forms that their counties have available. And so 
I would say, in addition to any tests that you have available with, within your county, that I would encourage an inclusion of an observation, observation on the playground, observation within the classroom, you know, try to incorporate a pretty long interview with um, whoever the caregiver is, whether that is the biological mom, adoptive mom, grandparents, any person who's actually providing care for that that child. Uh, I think an in, an interview should be uh, included in addition to observation and standardized tests. I think that graduate students know a lot about language sampling, but I don't know how many SLPs are still doing language sampling on a regular basis. And I think that's probably because of time and efficiency. But I, I think that that it would be an excellent addition, as well as just writing samples. It's one area that we haven't started to dig deep in because most of the kids that we're seeing are least right now in our research are younger, um, but literacy and writing and reading, um, uh, if they're at that age, certainly start to integrate that into your assessment. So I don't know that there's a ever a perfect assessment. You want to meet the child where they are and select something that is going to provide information. But I would say specific to this population, Uh, you know, really think about the social emotional regulation and the social engagement and how those factors are not typically things that we evaluate on an ongoing basis in our protocol, but perhaps we should start thinking about how those do affect academic performance. And uh, similarly, with regard to treatment, is there anything that you feel SLPs need to know? Oh, I don't have the answer for that one yet, J.D. I, you know, I, I think families, families need to be included in the treatment. I, I think they need to be informed. I think uh, as much as we need them to be honest with with us in terms of their background, we need to be honest with them about what we're seeing in their child. Uh, I, I believe that this particular family dynamic are um, probably a little bit more fragile in the way in which we present assessment results and the goals in which we're we're trying to offer them or supports that we're trying to offer them. So, you know, I think this population is, is very similar to any other population in that we want to provide treatment approaches that are evidence-based, which we're trying to, to figure out what that looks like and meet the child where they are. Dealing with emotions and feelings are going to be really, really important. Pam Holland is a researcher, an SLP, and the chair and graduate program director in the Department of Communication Disorders at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. Next episode, ASHA Voices will be continuing our coverage of the opioid epidemic with a conversation on opioid misuse and hearing loss. Find that in the podcast feed or at on.asha.org podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Reading, Writing, and the SLP, preschool to high school, and it begins February 2nd. Save $100 when you register by January 11th. Learn more at on.asha.org reading22. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.